Peer Review is a series of podcasts designed to shed light on the extraordinary breadth and diversity of talent that sit in the House of Lords. The House of Lords often gets a bad rap because it is thought to be a house of cronies and it is an unelected house. But I hope through these interviews you will see that there is this extraordinary talent, there is a great knowledge and experience, and with that I leave you to draw your own conclusions. My guest today is the one and only Naren Patel, Lord Patel of Dunkeld, the well-known obstetrician who's won every award. I mean, it's ridiculous. You were knighted in uh, 97, here in 99, in 2006. Oh, sorry, 2009, you were uh, given the Order of the Thistle, the first Asian to get the Order of the Thistle, I think. And, of course, you were Chancellor of Dundee University in 2006. So, I mean, incredible history. And you've been a great friend to me and helped to me in years I've been in the Lords. And it's so nice to be with you. When you were made a peer, um, of course, you are allowed to choose a coat of arms. And a motto. What did you? Can you remember what you chose? Actually, I didn't choose a coat of arms then. I chose the coat of arms when I was admitted to the Order of Thistle, because I think, it, as you know, it's quite mandatory to have a coat of arms then. Uh, why did I not choose when I was a peer? Simple answer: cost. Yes, it's the most expensive private enterprise in the country. Uh, the, uh... But when I did choose, it was an interesting exercise. With my background of Indian genes, Tanzanian birth, and British by uh, domicile. So we had a great discussion with my wife, Helen. Finally, we agreed that it had to be a combination of all of that. So the shield has a blue cross on it, which is a cross of both my universities. I'm a graduate of St. Andrews University. Mm. And of course, I, I was chancellor of the University of Dundee but I worked most of my life in Dundee. So the shield is a white shield with blue cross. I was born in Tanzania, so I chose, which is historically, supposedly the place of birth of humanity, the Olduvai Gorge, Tanzania, where we all came from, supposedly. So I chose, with my background of all my life caring for women, I chose a woman holding the Egyptian angst, which is the sign of life, which fulfill both my obstetric background, women, and life. And the other side, I chose uh, knowledge, reading a book. So it was a Greek god reading a book. And as my crest, I chose a woman holding a child. Now, something you are not privileged to, but I am, many, many times, is that when you first hand the baby to the mother, the first look the mother has mm. of her baby, which can never be repeated again because that's the first look, mm. is something extremely special. Mm. And I wanted to have that caught in, in this image of mother and child, which was going to be my crest on the, on the coat of arms. And I searched all over the place, including overseas. Eventually, anyway, I found somebody, a wood, wood carver from Scotland, did it. So now it's in the, in the stall at the top of the crest, which, as you know, will be handed to my, my 
children or my wife when I die. I think that first look of the mother is amazing. I saw it four times. Of course, in my wife's case, it was total shock. But uh, you, you, you've seen that. In truth, it was an unbelievable joy and often tears. It must be amazing privilege, as you say. But going back, um, you talk about Tanzania. When did you come over here and, and what was the circumstances? Well, I, I was born in Tanzania in a remote part called Lindi, which is on, just about yes, on the border between what is now Tanzania and, and Mozambique. My father, who was not educated because his father, own father, died at age, age 11, had been asked to go there for jobs from India. And I was born in a place called Lindi, Tanzania. We then moved to Dar es Salaam, which is the capital. Mm. Prior to that, I was placed, shall I say dumped, maybe it was a better <laughs> word, during a time when my parents had gone for holidays to India, which was a long holiday, so they put me into a school. Was they that should... going back to see their family? Or... Yes, that's yeah. going back to see the family. Uh, and then I was moved to a Roman Catholic English school in a place called Baroda, now called Baroda, in Gujarat where I stayed for just over three years, during which time I didn't see my parents. And that was my first school. And then I went back to Tanzania, Dar es Salaam, where I did all my studies till equivalent of GCSE. And I came to this country age 17 on my own with a view to doing A-levels and then enter medical school. And why did they choose Scotland? Or did you choose Scotland after? Uh, that's an interesting and slightly... Not an obvious place. No. Interesting because I did A-levels in London. Oh, I see. I mean, my intention was to seek going to medical school in London or maybe some English medical school because I didn't know Scotland. I'd never been there before. that. But apparently, and I didn't realize till I came to apply, that because I came from, although it was a protectorate, so-called colonies, I had to go to the colonial office to get approval to apply to medical school. And what year are we talking about here? Just we talked about 1956. Yeah. And um, this guy who was a typical colonial, and they're a breed apart, believe you me, <laughs> um, he said, because of the East African territories going through the problems of seeking independence, they would approve only two people from Tanzania and there was no sponsorship. It wasn't a question of funding or anything. It was just filling out your forms to say, yeah, this is a bona fide student from Tanzania. That's when I found out that he had no authority in Scotland as I was about to apply to go to Dublin. So I applied to Edinburgh and St. Andrews. St. Andrews asked me to come straight away for an interview. This was Queen's College. It was St. Andrews University, Queen's College, yes. Right, yeah. 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 And uh, you barely left. I that part of the world, have you, apart from to come to London and, and attend the Lords and, and obviously all the work you've done abroad, but you've lived in that area. Well, initially I did a year's surgery in Penzance. Ah, so you have left. <laughs> <laughs> yes, silly me. <laughs> in, in, in the way that happened was I knew I had to get a good post, a first post, in what's known as a professorial unit, which I already acquired anyway in, in Dundee. But the professor of obstetrics said, you want to do obstetrics? When I was a student, I said, yes. He said, once you've done your job in surgery and medicine, which is mandatory, uh, initial jobs, 
you'll start in obstetrics in 1966 and that'll be it. So I had to find these two jobs, surgery and medicine. So I, having never not firmed up on surgery, I eventually ended up in Penzance because a consultant there was a St. Andrews graduate. <laughs> so he said, yeah, I'll take you. It was an interesting time. But looking back at that time, did you find there was racism or you were being prejudiced there, there against? Was pretty, there was pretty open racism because there were no race rules as such. When I arrived in March 1956 to London, it was pitch dark because of all the coal that was being burned, the suit, in the middle of the day. And I remember taking a bus from Heathrow to Victoria Station where a guy met me and said, I have a room for you in Kilburn. And this house where mostly there were either Asians or black people. And that's where I stayed, 38 Priory Road, I still remember, Northwest 6. Mm-hmm. Um, and I stayed there for also when I was at medical school during vacation because I did jobs in the vacation. And uh, yes, there was. Uh, if you see... Accommodation, it would clearly state no blacks, mm-hmm. or sometimes no blacks, no Irish. But uh, it was quite once being thrown out of a restaurant, once being thrown out of books, as I remember, that we don't allow people like you in. But that was those days, and we moved a long way from there. And I think then things have changed. But yes, there was racism, and I think we shouldn't deny it. No. Uh, we should accept that that was the times. Yeah. Remember, racism isn't just about white and brown or black. I mean, racism existed in Africa too. Which Still, is does. Still does. Yeah. And, and, of course, it's another form of bullying, and bullying exists in all society, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. And, you know, we have to go through it. So you started pioneering um, the modern obstetrics back in Dundee, really. Yes, all my jobs have been done, except yeah. Penzance and the year I spent in University of And Florida. so in, that, in this, the time between you retiring and starting, I mean, what, what have been the big changes in all that the you, change. you've been involved in and that you, you've well, seen? Well, when I was a young doctor, if you had to, in a way, if you wanted to stay in academic department, so your ambition was to be an academic, you had to prove that you were capable of doing that. So obviously you had to find a niche research area. My research area was why do babies not grow, so-called small for day babies, and why do babies sometimes come prematurely? So those are the two questions. But also during that time, we, could do, we couldn't do the diagnostics that we can do now, even to find out if the baby was suffering, let's say, from lack of oxygen or diminished oxygen. And that's why I went to University of Florida in Gainesville to try and understand, better understand the physiology and pathophysiology of these mechanisms by doing, uh, working on animals. And the model I chose was a chronic sheep model. The sheep are quite docile and they allow you to do surgery on them and put catheters in lambs in utero and then do blood sampling, etc. I learned a lot about sheep, but didn't apply much to humans, except, except one thing that we did learn. There was a rivalry between Oxford and physiology department in the University of Gainesville 
as to what happens to a fetus, human or otherwise, if there's a lack of oxygen? And how does the adaptation to that occur, either before labor or particularly in labor? And you know it's common knowledge that if a baby suffers a lack of oxygen, either in pregnancy or particularly in labor, it could cause severe damage, often leading up to severe brain damage. Uh, and we learned a lot about that, as to how the, including human baby, adapts and mitigates against it. It protects his brain to a certain point. And it's that window of opportunity to identify when it's still protected in the brain. Uh, it, uh, well, to, during uh, pregnancy. During, pregnant, during labor particularly. During labor particularly. Particular. And that's what we learned. And I think that's, that's, that was one significant piece of research I didn't do. I was a team that did it. I was part of that team. In, in the, and this was in Gainesville? Or in, Ga in Gainesville, yeah. University of Florida. Yeah. And it did apply. Then, of course, we got the diagnostics in humans, how to detect that. And I remember going to Berlin because the professor there who became a friend uh, afterwards had devised a system of, uh, of collecting uh, fetal blood to detect lack of oxygen, which is still used now. And the, the technology has, must be amazing now. Technology now is amazing. I was, I, was, I was at a period in time when development of obstetrics were phenomenal. Not only about this kind of diagnostics, better understanding of physiology and pathophysiology, but also about uh, ultrasound came around so we could actually see the baby in utero, mm -hmm. uh, we can measure his, the baby's growth and performance. We can, the fetal heart monitoring came about. So, anyway, I was lucky that I was involved in each part of it in a different way, either learning about it or being involved in research about it. Which which other bits of research do you? Well, at one time I had done a, quite a lot of research in how the human babies reacts with uh, and recognizing of the fetal heart rate patterns, uh, either during pregnancy and particularly labor, and how it does vary from a normally grown healthy baby to maybe that's not fully grown or is compromised in any way, either through infections or growth or whatever. And even now you'll see, it is said that obstetrics has one of the highest rates of litigation. And if you look at it, most of it is related to failure to recognize that the fetal heart pattern was suspicious of a baby having lack of oxygen or some other issues. And they do not have the knowledge that each baby, depending upon his background, whether he's healthy or normally grown or not, will stunt the response. People claim that you can identify through antenatal recordings, but you can't, because I did a randomized study that, that showed that you can't. So you had a team of people working with you. Oh, yeah, I was very, I was very lucky that the department... How many would have been on that team? But in Dundee, of course, when I became a consultant, we were all the consultants with different special interests, plus research workers and other junior staff that we developed as academics. Um, but the environment in Dundee at that time was excellent because the professors then believed in each one of us having a specialism. So with a cancer doctor, infertility doctor, endocrine doctor, and myself as an obstetrician. It's amazing what you've achieved because you've been recognized in Germany, Finland, Argentina, Chile, 
and Italy, to name a few, as a patron or member of their societies, which is extraordinary how you've, there's been a sort of global. Yeah, but as an, yeah, as an academic, though, you must understand, not all academics have the opportunity to visit other departments and form collaborations and often will lecture as either visiting professors or visiting lecturers. And through that, you get recognized and they all become your friends. So you get this bakshi qualifications. <laughs> you know. There's no time yeah. for false modesty, sorry. <laughs> but anyway, extraordinary career. And, and um, you ended up as the Royal Society in Scotland. It must have been exciting, a huge privilege. Yeah, well, yes, all of these things. Um, the thing is, that if you, if you ask me to describe in one word, uh, how would I describe my life? Extraordinarily lucky. And that luck doesn't seem to stop. I suppose it will stop one day. <laughs> uh, but not yet. You do go for the Arnold Palmer theory. The harder I practice, the luckier I become. <laughs> Well, I certainly become luckier, but I don't know that I practice harder. I suspect uh, you suspect you did. So in '99, you become uh, a crossbench peer. Just give us a, a bit of I, because obviously I, I have no knowledge of what the crossbench peers do apart, uh, behind the scenes. But give <laughs> us a, a little insight into. Well, first of all, I was appointed in '99. Uh, it was an interesting story. I was in in Argentina lecturing. And my secretary called and said number 10 was looking for me. So I called back next day and they said it was the intention to recommend to Her Majesty that I be made a peer of the realm. And I said, oh, I'll call you back tomorrow. <laughs> um, but I was quite clear that I would not join the party, any of the political parties. And they said, no, no, there's no intention. It will be through the honors list. Remember in those days, yeah. crossbenches were appointed through the um, Queen's Honours List, so it was the uh, Queen's New Year's Honours List in '99 that I was appointed as a crossbench. But I was still working, and I'd just gone back to clinical work. So, uh, I, but that wasn't the real reason. The real reason also was clinical work. But I was also appointed by the Scottish Parliament to do a job for our Scottish Health Service. So I couldn't come yes. to London that often. So I didn't really come for the first four or five years. That was going to be my next question, because of the Scottish Health Service. What helped you achieve with, with that? Well, initially, if you're an academic or aspire to be academic, you first of all have to prove that you are a bona fide academic. <laughs> so you have to make sure that you have some recognition as a, something that you're really academically interested in and demonstrate that you can progress specialty in that direction so you're always concentrating and then you're a clinician so you want to be the best clinician there are lots of what i call pedestrian clinicians pedal snake oil or anyway so initially it's a concentration on your academic interests after that i got interested in and that was interesting how i got interested in colleges it was mainly to try and improve training it wasn't about so much about medical politics. It was more about improving the training. I wanted the training to be devised, and I subsequently achieved with a good friend. Uh, he was a professor at Newcastle, Bill Dunlop, 
to change the system, which is now used by other specialties too, which is a competency-based training. And, and just so that people can understand, obviously crossbenchers have no affiliation. You do have a convener who sort of tries to bring you to some form of order. The, the con convener is interesting because it's, it, it, convener never tells you how you'll behave or how you'll vote or anything. Well, certainly not you. <laughs> well, certainly not me. But, but they, they do try to inform you about what's going on because they're in contact with other front benches, so to speak, in, 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 in the Lords. Uh, and if there are times when if there are any reported misbehaviors on part of an individual, then the convener is perfectly at liberty to say something either personally or generally that is relevant. But on the whole, the convenership works fine as a crossbencher because they're all independent individuals. Yeah, the interesting thing now in this period of politics is that in the Lords, the government rarely wins votes. And presumably there are times where the convener speaks to our lead, the leader of the House, which is a Conservative at the moment, and, say, and he says, look, you know, we've got to get this legislation through. Can you not guide your people a, a bit more to helping us? I mean, presume those conversations go on. I, I think if you ask me my personal opinion, that it is, then it is this, that in the past, there were less number of people on the cross benches who either were political appointments, remember it is still possible for prime minister to appoint people who are crossbenchers. And there are people who come from a more political background who initially may not have been appointed as crossbenchers but have switched mm. from other parties. That's a considerable number. And that has changed the character as it used to be of the group of crossbenchers as a group. For instance, it, we always regarded that one ping pong is fine, but never two ping pong. Ping pong is when, when the bill goes back to the House back, of Commons and then back to back, the House of yes. Lords. Yeah, so we, we send it back, and if it comes back, we let the government of the day win the day. Mm. But thinking back in uh, for your time, you've been involved in the Lords. What's the pieces of legislation that you feel you've had the most... Well, influence in and right. have enjoyed. Right, it was uh, easy easy for me to influence the legislation when it was more scientific. So, for instance, when we had legislation related to embryo research or infertility or stem cell research, I had quite a bit of influence in changing it by the government of the day accepting it. But that was based on arguments were totally scientific. In and other a lot words, of that would have been behind the scenes, I guess. No, some of it was in the chamber, but it was you know, because there were lots of people who opposed that legislation. And in that, in that respect, I suppose I was for government. Um, the other piece of in health legislation is one about training when we established different, that Earl Howe was the minister, for instance, in the government. Um, and also when I won the vote that the government did not reverse only by four votes to make mental health have equal status to physical health. Same so mental health having the same esteem mm. as physical, which I think is very important. And well, yeah. even more so now. Yes, exactly. And the whole idea was that 
the amount of funding that's required for mental health should be proportionate to the needs as it is to the physical health. So, and there was one other one in welfare, which was even the Daily Mail said an immigrant, the son of an immigrant fighting for welfare, with compliments to which I was surprised. Daily <laughs> Mail, but there we are. So yeah, but others were just peripheral in terms of joining others to you know, but mostly it's related to your education or higher education. And given that you came into the health service from another part of the world and now see what it is now, I mean, what's your take on the current situation? I mean, is it a sustainable thing, the National Health Service? No, no. As you know, I chaired a committee on long term sustainability on NHS. And we said then that the two biggest challenges are the workforce problem and fixing social care funding uh, so that people who need social care are looked after in social care situation, not in healthcare situation, which jams up the whole system. system. Yeah. And now we've got a problem of primary care. I've, I, you know, I proposed a select committee last year, which is sitting now on primary and community care that will report in a few months' time. I'm not a member of it, but I proposed it. Because our model for primary care is based on the health care that was necessary in 1948, uh, which is now, I don't think, is applicable. Because medicine has changed dramatically. The life situation has changed. Management of diseases has changed. And we need a different model of primary and community care. And do you feel that you're banging your head against a brick wall all the time? Or do you think you're making progress? Or a bit I, of both? I think, I think the progress is rather slow. So it feels like banging your head against the wall. <laughs> but the, that hole is getting a bit bigger in the wall. <laughs> um, and I think it will get to a place where it will crash through. But it will require a political will. I think we politicize the healthcare too much in this country. It's easier to give it money than well. It's easier get to play easier to play a football with it. Yeah, based on ideology rather than what the service ought to be. Detach it from the politics, and it might do better. Mm. Well, it was always thought the Conservatives could never touch the NHS, and Labour could. So depending on the outcome of the next election remains to be seen. But in Scotland... Um, it's worse. <laughs> you've answered my question. <laughs> um, and how's that got worse? It, it, if I tell you what, but when, when I said to you I didn't come to the Parliament when I was first appointed, it was partly because the politicians of the time who were in power in the Hollywood Parliament asked me to chair a new body that they wanted to create called Clinical Standards Board to make sure that clinical standards across Scotland were the same and delivered to the same outcomes. And I thought that was novel and I was prepared to take it on. It helped that the chief medical officer uh, at the time was a friend of mine and we were at university together, Sir David Carter, who, became, mm. who was professor of surgery, a liver transplant surgeon in Edinburgh. And we were friends, so it was easy to carve up the whole thing. So um, and uh, if my what I said to them is just give me very simple legislation that gives me power and authority as the organization, I'll change it for you. And we did. We were very successful. And actually, it was recognized that the health service in Scotland was immensely better. 
on par to some of the best results in the other OECD countries. It wasn't politicized because the other commitment I had from the minister was when I produce a report of a colorectal surgery in a given hospital not coming up to standards, I don't want defense from any politician from that region or the minister. All I want them to say is we expect it to meet the standards. And they did stick to it. I went through five ministers of health without them. But then the government changed, and the, the party, party changed, and in control changed, and they started to politicize it. And as the time has gone on, now over a decade, it is now, because of this politicization, more and more bureaucracies introduced, and the health service is facing worse problem than in England in some ways. So, winding back the clock, if you started your life again, you'd still do what you've done? Look, I've attempted to say I could do all kinds of things and become a mountaineer. Well, you could have become a clerk. Whatever, you could have right? become a clerk. Yeah. <laughs> you gone back. But, <laughs> but I, had, I, had, I got such fulfillment in the job I did, right? Yeah. That I would cannot think of anything better. The pleasure of getting up in the morning, and I used to get up go straight to the hospital. My wife, Helen, will tell you that, because it was such a joy. I would go back tomorrow if they let me, <laughs> because it, it was really highly fulfilling. A legacy a doctor could uh, hope to live was to have had great fulfillment in your job, that you help people in their needs, and they appreciated your help. <laughs> And, and that's what a doctor's legacy is. Fantastic. Well, Narin, um, you've still got a lot to do to help the medical profession change in this dynamic new modern world we're in. And it's so important what you do in the Lords and what you have done over time, as you've demonstrated. Thank you very much indeed for sparing the time. It's been great talking to you, as always.